Hello and welcome to Fans, a podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Liverpool is one of my very favourite writers and one of my very favourite people, an actual top red, it's Kevin Sampson. Kev, how are you? I am very, very well. Thanks for asking me. Um, delighted to have you on. Uh, when I, when I decided I was obviously going to speak about the Reds on this podcast because they're very close to me um, you were my number one Red to get on um, genuinely were and I know you were sceptical like that when I told you that before we started recording but you're genuinely the man I want to get you on Loads I was pulling your leg <laughs> <laughs> no really keen to have you on and what makes this um, particular episode particularly special is we are in Liverpool today um, now I should stress we're recording this in early October about a week or so after tighter uh, measures relating to COVID-19 were introduced in Liverpool but before people start losing their shit um, we are outside so uh, we're not breaking any laws we're pretty well socially distanced as well so we're doing all the very safe things that we need to do to, to record this episode in Liverpool um, and we're outside at a venue you chose and it's a lovely venue to be at do you want to tell tell listeners where we are and why you chose this place? Yeah so we're outside Hotel Tier and Tier stands for This Is Anfield and it backs onto Stanley Park. It's actually on Anfield Road, so it's literally opposite the King Harry pub, if, uh, if people can envisage that. And I, yeah, I just wanted us to get as, as close to the ground, as close to our spiritual home as possible. It's a good excuse to be in, in, in L4 once again. And uh, we are sitting in the, in the hotel's palatial garden, enjoying a little bit of an autumnal breeze. Yeah, quite a breeze. It's very windy and a bit chilly. Thankfully, no rain. Uh, it had been raining uh, in, London, in London for the last few days. I was a bit concerned we'd get a downpour today. But no, it's a um, cold day, but clear, a little bit bright as well. And as you say, Anfield is a throw, uh, stone's throw away, isn't it? I mean, the cop entrance is about a five-minute walk from where we are. Uh, and I was saying to you when um, just before we started recording, when we were setting up, this is my first trip to the city since uh, the Atletico Madrid game, or Game Zero, as some people have perhaps dubbed it, uh, back in mid-March. It was the last time Liverpool played in front of a crowd. Um, I thought I'd feel pretty emotional coming back here today. This is my first time here since that game. Missed all those games since, obviously, uh, with no crowds. And I did, and I did feel quite emotional actually. When the, I was in a taxi from Lime Street, turned past Goodison, turned past the Arkles pub, came towards the ground via via Anfield or on, on Anfield Road, past the Arkles, and I genuinely felt really emotional. Saw the ground, obviously, from the other side of Stanley Park as well. Um, really, really miss going to the match. I know you feel the same as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've come on foot a lot of the way, yeah. and you know, just 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 coming up the hill. So you go past a pub called the Valley. And there used to be a Notre Dame school there. It's been been knocked down there. But the the feeling that you get when you come up that hill and the you know the roof of the cop and now the, you know the, the massive new main stand you mm. know appears simultaneously and they just start you know it's as though they're rising out of the ground and it it is honestly you know it may sound corny but it gets you every time. It's a feeling that I first had as a kid. You know going up that hill with my dad and every time I go up, I promise you, and I feel that same swell in my heart. It's just magnificent. Yeah, no, it's. Um, I found it strange and topsy turvy since since lockdown. Um, I mean, at the start of it all, I was incredibly gutted that we weren't able to go to the game, specific, specifically in March, April, when you know when we went about when I knew that this would be around the time we'd be winning the league when there's no football at all. When the football came back, I think I was a bit relieved that at least we could see the games on telly, and it was nice just seeing the Reds on on TV. Um, and so that that sort of softened things slightly, but then ever since, since certainly since the season's come back in September, I mean the Leeds game, the opening game of the season, 
to not be, I mean, that game was crazy anyway. It was an incredible game. And I, I just sat there at home watching, thinking what the atmosphere would have been like at Anfield. Um, I mean, what's, what's your mood been like? What, what did you feel on the day, first of all, when we won the league? Which actually, we wouldn't have been at the ground anyway, because that was when uh, Man City lost at Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. But also, as well, the day Jordan Henderson lifted the trophy in that Chelsea game. I know you actually watched that here, didn't you? I watched it here, yeah, mm. with, you know, with a lot of my mates who, as many of them as we could get together as possible, you know, mm. for, for coming up here, just trying to recreate, you know, some semblance of, a, of an atmosphere. And, you know, make no bones about it, it was. It was not ideal, you know, it was weird, the fact that the game was being played literally 100 yards away mm. and we couldn't be there, you know, to see the team lift the trophy. But we did our best, you know, we, uh, um, the, uh, the, the lad that, that owns this hotel, uh, Taggy, he'd, um, he'd invested in some replica trophies, some nice kind of plastic trophies, oh, really? so everybody, everybody had a good lap of oh, honour, you know, around the, uh, around the back of the, uh, the, the, the hotel. So... Um, and, and and same really, you know, since the season has come back, you know, of course, you know, you, you would rather, I mean, I can't walk past a, a game of amateur football in the park without stopping and watching it yeah. and, and always pick a side, you know, so, so of course you're always going to take, you know, any football over no football, but it does seem kind of ghostly and, and, and disconnected and, and, and disembodied, you know, this whole thing mm. of, of watching it remotely and, and there being, you know, just no, no crowds in the stadium, no reaction, you know, when, 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 when goals go in and, 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 and there's no way of getting behind the team when, when things aren't going so well. So yeah. it's an odd one, but, you know, let's hope it's not for too much longer, eh? Yeah. Well, did you were you able to hear? Um, so when you were here for the Chelsea game, were you able to hear the celebrations, all the fireworks and everything go off? Oh, massively! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, at, at, at certain times, like they, uh, you know, they just muted the sound on the TV, and mm. um, it, it, it's difficult to set the scene to to, pe- to people who are listening. But the way it's laid out is there's a there's a big back garden, but there's like a um, a raised sort of terrace, you know, yeah. and. Um, there, there, there was kind of a an MC who, who who was up there almost like you know telling people just to you know to be quiet for a second and and everybody went kind of you know hushed and you could hear you know all you could hear was fireworks going off by then a crowd had built up outside yeah. the ground you know and it was that was it was great and then we all just started singing ourselves again. Oh, sounds great. My my experience of that day was actually um, sort of nice and a bit uh, rubbish as well where I met with two of my mates who I regularly go to the game with um, who I hadn't seen since the Atletico Madrid match in March we met at one of their uh, we, we went to the pub had a few beers first my f- and um, and then we went to one of my mates there were two there one of theirs house to watch the game itself uh, the pub at the, the pub we went to the, the, uh, before we went to his house to watch the game was the f- it was there that I drank lager for the first time since March as well since lockdown I just don't drink lager at home I have a glass of wine but I don't drink lager at home so it's my first pint since March as well and uh, got slightly giddy on it so I had about three or four then we were still knocking back a few beers when we got back to his house as well should say socially distanced throughout all of this as well um, and uh, so by the time Jordan Henderson lifted the trophy I was bladdered I don't really remember it <laughs> this moment I've been waiting 30 years for I'd really you know I so pretty much as it would have been then yeah exactly well true I guess but I text my mate the following morning and went uh, thanks for hosting last night it was great do you actually remember Henderson lifting the trophy and he's like yeah I think so don't you I go nah man I was, I was hammered when it happened yeah. so I've watched endless replays since but the actual moment itself was a bit blurry but um, never mind it did happen um, should say you mentioned Taggy as well his wife Camilla 
um, just thank them both they've been great um, accommodating us they're actually not here and we'll come on to why in a second it's for a very interesting reason but uh, yeah there's nobody here but the, the door was open to the back garden so uh, we've walked in they, they said we could meet here which is fantastic as Kevin said big back garden the beer garden is absolutely enormous loads of tables we've taken one of them and over my shoulder is the balcony with the with the screen where I presume you would have watched yeah, the yeah. Chelsea game so that sets the scene a bit as I said a bit nippy but thankfully very um uh, not not raining and a, a clear day which is great as well and um, yeah so why are tagging Camilla not here you told me this just before we start recording very interesting actually so um, yeah there's, there's a lot of the big old houses along here have been converted into into bars and bed and breakfast mm. and it's you know it, it, it's to you know to cater for you know the, 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 the match day influx and uh, but they they're, they're really good bunch like they're all very very community minded and they you know they, they invest a lot in, in kind of local charities one of the things that they um, are, you know, are, are funding is you'll you'll notice like when you walk around you know the the terrace streets around Anfield that a lot of murals springing up mm. for you know players past and present. Yeah, well, I should say um, a Trent one. Um, I just passed on the way. I didn't. Really, I had ne- not seen it before. It's just it's just here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's right opposite. Massive, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, so they've yeah they they've done one for Ray Clements, mm. which has been unveiled today so i think everybody connected with the hotel would uh, would be there lending a hand and uh, and and just seeing you know the yeah. the fruits of their labor that's great you know the, the, the way they you know the way they all get involved in the you know the liverpool four community is mm. is brilliant they're, you know they're here for the long term no fantastic well we will actually talk about uh, ray clements later he comes up in he's in your all-time 11 which you've picked which uh, which is fantastic really interesting there's a few picks in there including clements i want to speak about uh, specifically before we do that um yeah we're gonna have a really good chat about your time following liverpool um so the first game you went to was in october 1967 we'll get on to that um in a bit more detail shortly um but i just want to talk more broadly about your experiences since then because so much has happened as so or as a Liverpool fan, you would have experienced so much since since you went to that first game in October '67. And opposition fans roll their eyes when Liverpool fans talk about our amazing history, but our history is absolutely incredible. And uh, you know, there's been incredible managers, incredible players, incredible games, incredible success. There's also been grief and tragedy and controversy. I mean, in 31 years alone that I've supported the, the club, I was thinking about this recently. I can't even think of a dull few months, let alone a dull season. And I'm just wondering, what's your sort of 50 foot high take on supporting Liverpool? Do you think it's a more eventful and enriching experience than supporting any other team in this country? I do, and and it is. And you know, just touching upon the, you know, that that absurd task that you're that you get faced with. You know, pick your all time best eleven. Yeah. You know, the, we have been just so so spoilt and so blessed with the most amazing talent. When you think that players like you know Xavi Alonso. Torres, Mascherano, you know, players like this who don't even come in your your top twenty five, let yeah. alone your top eleven, and and even those, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned I my, I went to my first game in sixty seven, you know, I don't remember much about it at all. Uh, what what I do remember is being obsessed with the cop, you know, the noise of the cop. So my dad, you know, made that sneaked me in. I don't think it, it, it was that difficult in those days. And he was in the Kemlin Road, which is now the uh, the Kenny Dalglish stand, and. I remember just how green the grass was. It just seemed to be an incredible kind of vivid shade of green, and 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 you know the you know the 
the red in those days was 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 slightly different. You know, it's much more crimson. Mm. And I, but I spent as much time with my head cocked to the left, just at the you know the spectacle of the cop. It was just something else. You know, the volume of it, but the way you know they it was constantly shifting and moving left and right up and down and everything and and it just you know it, it set me off it got under my skin and it the you know that that was the the stars of the voyage and it, it's odd to think you know considering everything that we've won and the amount of unbelievable highs as well as you know absolutely crushing and devastating lows but in that first seven seasons i followed liverpool we didn't win a thing yeah. <laughs> we we, uh, we were always knocking the door i can remember um a season where it went to the last game. I think Arsenal had to beat Tottenham, and we had to beat Derby at the baseball ground. And uh, as I remember, it's, you know, it's just so exciting. By the way, listening to matches on the on the radio, mm. you know, in bed when you're supposed to be asleep as a yeah. kid, there's just something very, uh, just, just just kind of. It, it, it just feels really really kind of exciting you know going because you can't see what's mm. going on so you're reliant on trying to imagine what's going on and then Arsenal beat Tottenham so that was that one was that for the league then without being able that to was, yeah, yeah title, that was yeah. that was for the league title um, I remember us getting to the semi-final of the first cup and Leeds knocking us out mm. over two legs there was the FA Cup final against Arsenal yeah. you know the Charlie George final so the, you know we were always kind of there or thereabouts but the, f- the first time we actually won a trophy um for me, you know, it was 1973 when we won um, what was then the UFA Cup because it was EUFA, <laughs> uh, and we won the league that season yeah, as well. Yeah. So you know that was, and then, and then that you know that seemed to start a run where we were, you know, like 74 we won the FA Cup, didn't win anything. 75, 76 won the league and the UEFA Cup, and you know, and, and and on it goes, and and throughout that time, I mean, I I would put it to you that if it weren't for the fact that Man United became so successful at a time when we were going the other way. I think you would just shrug it off as 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 being you know you would see that as a, as a seamless and and just unimaginable run of success. And the only thing that makes it feel and I'm just talking about trophies and the yeah, whole yeah. thing of kind of winning things. You know, um, we can get into the whole kind of fan experience as we talk more. But just in terms of of, of winning things I think it was only the fact that they started chipping away at our 18 titles and started doing and taking for granted what we'd always taken for granted and we the two teams and the two clubs and the two sets of supporters hated each other so much mm. that that maybe tarnished things a little bit and makes you makes you look at that period slightly differently but the fact is you know we still won a few things you know we we uh, we won an, an FA Cup in '92. We won the League Cup in '95. You know we got to finals and semi-finals and all this, which fans of most teams yeah. don't even. You know, not only do they not expect it, they don't even dream about it. And yet, for us, and you know, and, and coming back to your question of you know, do I see us as being in a in a unique position? You know, I I really do because we start the season and every season with the expectation that we're going to win the league it's as simple yeah. as that yeah no I mean on, genuinely I mean even the 90s so that's the decade I grew up supporting Liverpool and I was you know I said putting this agenda together for this podcast I mean I've done this is the fifth episode we've done and the other four um, there's been loads to speak to with all the relevant guests and they've all been fantastic they've all had amazing stories to tell but it's been relatively easy to put the agenda together because for the period that those fans have supported their clubs and the period their clubs in general you know they've had great moments but they've all been kind of concentrated and there's been sort of barren spells and nothing's happened to try and you know to put an agenda together to speak to a Liverpool fan and speak to supporting the clubs in 67 is 
you know, I mean, we, we could talk for 100 hours. There's so, I mean, in the 90s alone, yeah, as you said, we won two trophies in the 90s, a relatively barren spell. But in that time, you just think about some of the football we played, some of the players we had, just some of the moments. I mean, the, the cream suits at Wembley, you know, the 4-3 against Newcastle. You then go into the noughties, you know, you have Hicks and Gillette. You then have Luis Suarez. I mean, even, you know, Kenny coming back. I mean, just... It's endless. Like, as I said, I can't even think of a dull few months, let alone a dull season. I mean, it's, it is just an incredible period. And then, as I said, all the winning as well, which happens either side of the sort of 90s and the, and the noise has just been absolutely amazing. But let, let's go back to your, your first game. So specifically, it was on Saturday, the 14th of October, 1967. So come up to the anniversary of that, aren't we? Given we're in early October now. Very Liv- close. Yeah. yeah, very close indeed. Liverpool 3, West Ham 1 in the old first division. Uh, in St John with 2. To Liverpool's goals in the 15th and 38th minute. Tommy Smith got the other on the 68th minute. Martin Peters scored for a West Ham side that also contained Billy Bonds, Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst and uh, and Harry Redknapp. So um, you touched on this and I, and I checked, you were four, if I'm not yes. mistaken, yep. October yep. 67. You can't remember anything about that game, surely. What I, what, <laughs> what I remember is, you know, is all the, everything but the game itself. <laughs> yeah. I remember the walk up to the ground. I remember seeing the ground for the first time. The, the cop from behind in those days it, you couldn't call them windows but right up at the the top you know before you you hit the roof there were were you know there was glass basically there were these glass slats which i presume must have been to to let the light in and the light was bouncing off them and it was you know it was it was all very magical you know even even the police horses which which seemed a hundred feet tall and you know the the whole thing i mean i i stood outside the pub well, my, my dad used to go there was two salisbury's there was the the big Salisbury which is now the 12th man but there's one called the little Solly and that was the one that he went to I stood outside and he brought me out a pack of crisps you know while he was in there with his mates um, went to the game and the thing that made the biggest impression on me was the cop you know the the noise and the spectacle of the cop it was just I, I hadn't been prepared for it and and just could not keep from mm. just turning left the whole time and, and, and just, you know, every time they sang, you know, I, I wasn't interested what was going on in the pitch. I was turning and going, oh, God, that's, that's amazing. And I, I, I don't think it was one of those kind of thunderbolt moments where, you, you know, you see your future. But there was definitely a, a real kind of intrinsic connection, which, which taught me, you know, that's where I wanted to yeah. be. You know, when, well, I, when I was old enough, I wanted to be in that number. That's why, you know, that's... Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you when when did you transition to the cop and did you do the boys' pen? And do you want to d- explain what the boys' pen is? Because, well, um, I want to see if you can top one description I heard of the boys' pen. Someone said it's the co- it was a it's a mix between a crash and a concentration camp, <laughs> um, which I think is just one of the most glorious descriptions of anything ever. Uh, do you want to talk about the boys' pen and did you ever go in it? I mean, talk you know talk about welcome to hell. <laughs> yeah. It was it was it, it was a lion's den. It was it was horrible. I I, I went twice you know when I came up the first time you know I begged never to have to go again <laughs> and the second time was followed the the procession so I mean anybody who remembers those days will remember because of the configuration of the ground and the way the cop met with the main stand so when the main stand was built the, the bit where it meets the boys pen used to be it you used to be able to get those tickets really cheap because it was an obstructed view and you would see, you know, from the moment the game kicked off, there'd be a migration of half the boys been climbing out into the main stand, the other half climbing into the cops. So very few people actually stayed in the boys' pen. And it was literally a cage, and wasn't it? It was a cage, yeah. yeah, yeah. Was, and, and there'd be, you know, little mobs from Scotland Road and Kirby and Bootle, and they all knew each other. 
And as it kind of emptied out a little bit, if they saw somebody standing on their own, you know, it just, you know, they were just absolutely brutal. They'd be straight yeah. over, you know, going through your pockets, what have you got, where you're from. Just, yeah. I don't, just as an aside, it's always fascinated me, you know, when those sort of things happen, when someone was going to get a slap in. <laughs> Or if they were going to nick your scarf, they sort of explain what they were going to do first. You know, they kind of justify it. And, you know, Polite say, gangsters. They say, where are you from? And I say, Birkenhead. And they go, okay, now, now you're going to get a slap. And you're gonna, now we're going to take your silky off you. So, um, yeah, I went in the, in, in the boys' pen twice. And um, it didn't put me off, you know. You yeah. know I, I feel as though that was a, a rite of passage. Um, but, you know, I am now and always was very wee. So the whole thing of... Of going in the cop, you know, that was um, that was an occupational hazard yeah, at first because yeah. I literally couldn't see a thing. You know, yeah. I was in the cop, for example, you know, for the famous Saint Etienne game. So, you know, in the in in the space of a few weeks, there was Saint Etienne and there was um, West Ham last game of the season to win the league. And both of those games, I'm you know, most of what I saw was you know the the backs of people's yeah. shoulders, um, but wouldn't have been anywhere else. Wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere else. You know, they they. The Senetian game, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we will talk about Hillsborough at some point yeah, later in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of people who, you know, who were at Hillsborough and, and who survived Hillsborough will tell you the same thing in that, you know, at first, you, for all that it was, it was really, really, really uncomfortable. And I'm talking about outside the ground before you can get inside the ground. You were accustomed to it, you know, it was mm. for, for big games, it was the norm to be really, really tightly packed and to feel as though, you know, sometimes your feet would leave the ground and you would be taken in a completely different direction and your feet wouldn't touch the ground again for, for another minute mm. or so. And that Senetian game was um, was really my first taste of being absolutely you know just unbelievably uncomfortably crushed because when the the third goal went in I was immediately like I was propelled forward you know it felt like about 10 or 20 feet found myself like midriff on a crash barrier and what would normally happen again you know you were you were accustomed to that you get pushed against the barrier but then the crowd would move backwards or it mm. would move sideways it would move to you know but it didn't it just kept on coming and coming and coming and I, I was almost like a pincer. I was actually bent over double so that my head was pointing Jeez. down at the terrace and my feet were in midair. And, and, and I was thinking, I can't breathe, you know. I, I, really, you know, I was still delirious. You were 14 at this stage from Masters, right? Yeah, 77, yeah. 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 And, and, but is that not terrifying? And, and, and I was tiny as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, me and my brother and another couple of lads, we'd, we'd bunked off school because, again, you know, part of the ritual was... Over the past couple of seasons, when those big games came around, to be guaranteed that you were going to get in, you had to be queuing up at least two hours before. So we actually got up to the ground at one o'clock, even though the you know the turnstiles didn't open till till five. But we got in, mm. and uh, yeah, you know it was it, it was really frightening. But but what overrode everything was the fact that I was in that position yeah. because. David Fairclough had scored that goal yeah. and we were 3-1 up and we were you know we were effectively through and of course you know eventually the crowd did move and and uh, you know I turned around and you know couldn't see anybody that I was with and didn't care quite frankly but it was it, it was um, it was my first taste of, of, of that sort of you mm. know really really packed cop it was magic I mean the, yeah. you know there is a lot about 
modern football. I, I don't subscribe to this thing that modern football is just complete. You know, there's loads about modern football that I, I, I love, you know, not least the pitches, not least the way that, you know, the most skillful players are, are, are more protected by referees. You know, there's a lot about it that yeah. I love, but I cannot but help be nostalgic about Anfield the way it was, you know, when, yeah. when, when the cop had 23,000 people on it and, uh, and the whole kind of, you know, th- those nights and those, th- those games, you know, when the place was absolutely rocking and you could feel, you know, the, the terrace. So we, we always used to, on the, on the cop, used to, if you were looking at the cop from the pitch, we would be like two thirds of the way up on the left hand side. There was a little, um, there was a snack bar just behind with a, you know, with a, with a wall within the cop and we'd be kind of in front of that. But the, the, um, the stanchion, the, the kind of crash barrier that we stood by, when the cop was really, you know, it was so loud that it would actually treble out. So you couldn't actually hear, or, but you could feel it. You could feel the yeah. vibrations coming through the, coming through the, the crash barrier, uh, almost like an electric shock, you know. And, and those are things that, that I sometimes find it coming into me, into my sleep, you know. And, and you, you wake up with such an unbelievable yearning and nostalgia and I think it's all to do with, you know, that, that kind of, you know, that, that sort of yearning for times gone by and, and, mm. and good times. But I think it's also because it's, it's so closely tied in with your adolescence, you know. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's your coming of age, but it's the coming together of all these things that are important to you. Yeah. And, and for me growing up here, you know, it's, it's music, fashion, football. And they all, in that season, came together in an unbelievable way. Because, again, you know, that... 76 77 season was when see after my dad died there was nothing stopping me going to away games then so he would he would take me to the the ones that were within reach like you know west brom or forest or mm. you know games like that but didn't want me uh, didn't want me going on the train or on the coach on my own because it was you know, the, you know hooliganism was was, yeah. was was absolutely everywhere at the time but of course, yeah, I started going, and what I started seeing more and more was that the Liverpool lads dressed very, very differently to everywhere else you went. You know, you would go to Newcastle or Derby County, or you know, and they'd they'd have butchers' coats on, and they'd have these kind of Bee Gees haircuts. <laughs> and you go to some of the London clubs, and they were much more like like Bonehead. You know, I mean, West Ham had a, had a big sort of skinhead following, yeah. and, and and Chelsea had the first year of punks. But in terms of like, you know, en masse, like wearing training shoes and, you know, very narrow lowest jeans. We had these kind of David Bowie haircuts with a, you know, a floppy fringe and a, a kind of wedge, almost like a DA at the back. And, you know, it was very, very different. And, and you just felt like, and it was when the team, you know, was really on the rise under Bob Paisley. You know, we yeah. just won the European Cup for the first time. We'd just signed Kenny Dalgleish. You know, we were about to sign Graham Souness. We were taking thousands everywhere. And it seemed like we had a really, really young, you know, when I say hardcore, I don't mean that, I mean it's in the sense that it was only 50 or 60. I had a huge mm. away following that seemed to be really young, seemed to be my age group. And then on top of that, we um, there was a, a new club open called Eric's that played, you know, a lot of new wave stuff, but a lot of really experimental kind of, you know, electronic stuff. So, you know, the likes of Cabaret Voltaire, David Bowie was in his... Um, heroes and low and uh, you know lots of kind of mm. e- electronics so and the human league were on the rise and all, all these sort of things 
we had a brilliant local music scene, you know, with Echo and the Bunnymen and Teardrop and Wahit, as they were called then, you know. So all of these things were, were coming together at the time when I was, you know, 15, 16 mm. years of age. And it was just, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure any adolescent would tell you that, you know, whenever their adolescence is or was, it's the best time ever to yeah. be alive. So, like, going to Eric's and things like that, would that be sort of the night before the match? You, you sort of, listen, you're going out on the Friday and then you're hitting, hitting the game on the Saturday. I mean, just like the per- well, when, like when, when, when Eric's first opened, I was, I was too young to get in. Yeah, of course you um, yeah, yeah. But they, they had matinees, um, which they would do as, as conveniently as half five on the Saturday. So we saw so many great bands. I mean, we saw The Clash and a matinee, oh, can you believe? Bloody, you know, yeah. uh, We saw bands like the, the Pretenders, Susie and the Banshees, The Undertones, mm. Perubu, you know, just whoever happens to be going. I would go and see anybody. But, um, so is that like sort of after the game, you're going from yeah, the match yeah, to, yeah. To, to see all these great bands? Yeah, what, else, what, yeah. the, what a Saturday yeah. that is. Can you imagine it? You know, <laughs> just... Hell. Just unbelievable, yeah. and this is this is before girls start playing a party. You know, that there was there was just too much, too much other great stuff going on, and uh, you know the pocket money wouldn't wouldn't stretch to uh, to to buying a girl a snake bite or a half a lager and lime or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. That was yet to come. Yeah. Well, well, we'll come on to that the Paisley period specifically, and and also we'll, we'll reflect back a bit more detail about Anfield and the atmosphere and the cop a bit later. I just want to go back to those early days so obviously in 67 Bill Shankly's manager um, there's this incredible incredible aura about him now you know he's the folk hero who started it all and I'm just kind of curious about how much of that was happening in real time how much of love and devotion was happening in real time were there sort of sections of the fan base for instance who were a bit nonplussed about him and maybe even um, maybe even wanted him to go in that and you touched on it earlier that seven year period where we won nothing between 66 and 73 I mean how much of the Shankly uh the sort of the love and devotion that we all have as Liverpool fans for him how much is was that sort of post or how much was as I said was that happening in real time well certainly um, you know so much of it was happening in real time that happened before I was really going so I think he had an enormous amount of credit in the bank for winning the FA Cup in 65 there's there's just no telling how huge winning the Cup was in those days and so I'm experiencing a lot of this you know through through my dad really coming back so he was still going I mean he went everywhere in Europe like he was on that plane to Reykjavik for example and I you know I couldn't wait to for him to get back and tell us his stories and so on and he he adored Shanks he absolutely idolized him I mean he wrote to him about me because I I was a left footer which was comparatively oh, really? rare and he and he wrote to him and said that you want to keep an eye on my lad Kev <laughs> you know he's a, he's and I got a letter back from wow. him saying, saying you know make sure you know don't don't let him forget that he, that his right's not for standing on <laughs> work on that right foot but you know uh, keep in touch and let's see how he's getting on That's in a few amazing. years time and all of that wow. um, but I can remember vividly the um, the shock of being dumped out of the FA Cup by Watford and the uh, the name of Barry N. Dean is is chiselled on my on my heart it was just it, fella. Barry Endine <laughs> scored the goal for Watford that knocked us out of the FA Cup in 1970 okay. and it was a real you know it was it was a shock it was a giant killing at the time and my recollection of it so again you know I'm, I'm eight years of age at the time so uh, so a lot of through mm. hearing how my dad and his brothers and his mates would would, would react to that um, and certainly they were not calling for his head. I don't think I don't think that was the norm in those days to, to call. What what I think was the um, 
you know, the the received wisdom was that that squad that had won the league twice had got us to the semi-final of the European Cup, which we were cheated out of by Inter Milan, had won us at the won us the FA Cup. But there was a feeling now that you know some of those players, you know, had had not just reached the sell-by date, but they were over the hill. Mm. Um, I think Peter Thompson stayed for another couple of seasons, but we brought in, and for me, this was this was really really exciting because up until then, I hadn't really had an out-and-out hero. Like I really liked Emlyn Hughes because he had a hard shot, and when you're a kid, like you, you know, you really you really look up to players who, who who've got a hard shot. That's why we all love John Arnaiz, wasn't it? Can't think of any other reason. <laughs> You know, he, he would, and he would score important goals. I remember yeah. him getting a great one against Everton from, you know, uh, from outside the box, you know, in, in front of the park end. So I liked, I liked Emlyn Hughes, and um, I really liked Bobby Graham. Um, I think simply because he was the number nine at the time, and he, you know, he he popped up and scored goals. But in that, in the great kind of overhaul, when you know, when when Shanks did his did his big squad rebuild. He brought in a teenager from Wolverhampton Wanderers called Alan Evans for a hundred thousand pounds. He was nineteen, and that was that was my first kind of real out-and-out football idol. Okay. And it's a shame, really, because he was an unbelievably gifted player. Um, and as as I remember, I think in between him signing for Liverpool and going back to Wolverhampton. I'm pretty. I think he got glassed in a pub in Wolverhampton. That he was oh, seen wow. as being because he was, you know. Him, him and Derek Dugan were, were going to be the uh, the partnership, and he and he broke up the partnership to come and sign for Liverpool. And he never quite hit the ground running. And the following summer, the summer of '71, we signed Kevin Keegan from Scunthorpe, and then that was my real, you know, that was you know Alan Alan who even even if Alan Evans did spell his his Alan with a U, <laughs> we had a player called Kevin. <laughs> Well, uh, I know because in right. extra time, which will come on to your your brilliant book, you you yeah. mentioned early on that he was one of your heroes purely because he was called Kevin. Could I have an orange juice, please? Yes. Not no, are you Camilla by any chance? Yes, I am. I'm Sachin. How are you? Nice to meet you. Yeah, sorry, I did I did try and come round, but no one no one uh, was round, so uh, well, we just started. My colleagues just seeing you. And said, yeah. Do you know there's someone in the podcast? <laughs> well, yeah, oh my God, yeah. They, Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. Yeah. I tell you, could I have a bottle of beer, a bottle of lager, whatever you've got? Yeah, uh, Peroni. Uh, Peroni would be great, yeah. That'd be fantastic. Thanks, Thank you very much. much. Lovely to meet you as well. Right, so that's Camilla. So, yeah, we yeah. mentioned her early on, uh, Taggy's wife, who's just come out, as you probably heard, there to uh, take some drinks orders. That's, that was lovely. That's a lovely yeah, bonus, yeah. A live intervention. Yeah, no, we just saying before we go, yeah, in extra time, which I want to talk about later, you're genuinely one of my favourite football books of all time, which, which you wrote, you mentioned in the intro, well, I think the first chapter that... Kevin King was one of your heroes purely because he was called Kevin, which I think is great. <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah if, if anyone wanted for, for any kind of arcane reason to try and forge <laughs> yeah. my signature, my signature is 100% based on his. There's going to be a lot of money coming out of your bank account in the next few weeks, Kevin, because you just told him what your signature is like. Damn. <laughs> if only there was anything there in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, so that was obviously a big moment for, for Shankly and that, and yeah, sort of, it really did sort of revitalise the team, didn't it, Keegan arriving? It did. So, I mean, Keegan, Steve Highway yeah. arrived from mm. Skemmersdale. Um, Ray Clements arrived. So I don't know. I don't know what was going on. Whether we had the, whether we had a crack Euro scout based in Scunthorpe. <laughs> we, we got Ray Clements from Scunthorpe. We got Keegan from Scunthorpe. 
Steve Highway came from Skemmersdale United. Um, so it was quite a reboot, you know, yeah, in terms yeah. there's quite a, a, a lot of young talents. Brian Reid, I remember, once wrote something where, thank you very much, the drinks have arrived. That's Cheers, very kind thanks. of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. So, yeah, so Brian Reid, I remember, once wrote a piece where he said, um, along the lines of, Liverpool are a fan base that wants to fall in love with its manager and that goes back to Bill Shankly and I think there's something really true in that I, I know fans of a lot of other clubs sort of shrug their shoulders when managers come and go but we get really attached to our managers don't we and, I, and it does feel like that started with Shankly I think definitely but Shankly had that that sort of messianic presence where you know he wasn't just a manager but he was an orator and, and he was a man of the people mm. and he, he just had that unbelievable connection where he could you know he could just whip you up into a frenzy since i come here to liverpool and to anfield i have drummed it into our players time and again that they are privileged to play for you And if they didn't believe me, they believe me now. Um, let's talk about the Paisley years, because obviously they were they were kind of your halcyon days. As I said, you were entering your adolescent period. It is the most exciting time to be a fan. As you say, three European Cups, six league titles. We just couldn't stop winning in that period. And I think the, probably the most exciting thing that happened linked to the European Cup wins is the European travel aspect. You know, we were suddenly going, you know, as a fan base, going abroad regularly. Um, and there's this idea that we, I mean, you, you mentioned it as well that we brought casual culture to England via Europe so you know, everyone's kind of got Adidas uh, trim trabs on and uh, Lacoste jackets and we were, the, we, were the, we were the sort of the mob who brought that to England via our travels to Europe do you just want to talk about that period about going abroad with Liverpool and, and just the, ex, the explosion of excitement and, and sort of culture and flavour that you're getting in that period following the Reds first of all let me talk about the 75-76 season because mm-hmm. that was when I said farewell to me dad as it turned out so unbeknown to us you know uh, he'd had he'd had bowel cancer I think men were just like that in those days I think they thought that if they didn't say anything and didn't go to the doctor then it probably you know yeah. it was it was a bit of tummy ache it was appendicitis well, I, can tell you, I can tell you the dad who's got diabetes now they're the same now as well dad's going to be incredibly stubborn with their health aren't they? it's, it's a sign of weakness or something I don't know what, I don't it, know is, what it is yeah. it's, it's mine because you know the tragedy is if he had said something earlier then maybe they could have done something yeah. about it so the thing that I had been obsessed with from the start and that just grew and grew and grew inside of me was I just wanted to be in that crowd and I wanted to go to the away games you know I just loved the idea of going away with Liverpool mm. and he didn't really want me to do that because of the you know the the prevalence of, of of football violence at the time, and I just thought you know I actually found that quite exciting as well. You know, even though I, I had no no ambition to you know to to hurt people just because they supported different teams to me, I just you know I started going really going regularly to aways that season. Um, the you know uh, the seventy seven seventy eight season in particular. You know, I can remember so many games stand out, but. Um, but just in terms of the way the the whole kind of fashion thing was intersecting with us as a club and as a fan base, um, I think that that whole thing, you know, people people call it casual now because for for years and years and years it just didn't have a name because mm. it was so peculiar to Liverpool for that first season, season and a half. 
I did not see it anywhere, you know, not even in, in little pockets. And this was like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands at, at Liverpool. And it just, you know, it started with, instead of having, you know, the centre part BG hairstyle, it was, you know, side parted and yeah. then the fringes started growing longer. People started wearing samba, narrow jeans, uh, cagoules, all this sort of thing. And then obviously with all the, the European travel, then, you know, they started, you know, I, I, I still wasn't going to the European aways quite that early, but they were bringing back all this, you know, really, like, first of all, amazing training shoes, yeah. the likes that you just didn't see in the shops, basically, in, in, in the most high streets, you probably see, you know, Adidas Kick, um, you know, Puma States, maybe, um, Samba, Mamba, you know, those so they're basically black training shoes with white stripes. And they were bringing back, you know, these, these you know, really, really colourful ones, you know. And I, can, I can remember, like, um, the first strap-overs coming in. I can remember these these training shoes called Tom Ocker. And, and, you know, so many of them were named after tennis players and squash players. There was Barrington Gold. Um, there was um, Rod Laver, you know. There, there, was, there, there was Stan Smith, obviously. Um, and, and these were all coming in along with... You know, along with like brands like you know Lacoste, and really, you know, the the first time I was ever conscious of any other team supporters dressing in the way that we did was actually the semi-final of the FA Cup in '79, and it was the the replay at Goodison, so it was Liverpool against Man United, and in the replay afterwards, like you know, we we came out of the ground uh, straight into the middle of like hand-to-hand you know mob-to-mob fighting you know neither side giving way at all and me just thinking who's who i don't don't know which is (laughs) us you know because the man united fans are quite a lot of skinny little kids with 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 flick haircuts you know was that a real badge of honor then for you guys traveling away watching Liverpool at that time that you looked so different very very much so i i I loved it and the fact of you know it wasn't just looking different but it was it was quite a provocative sort of androgynous look if you like you know it was really uh, um and like i say you know with 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 so much of the fan base being that young you know it was um, it was just great, you know, all of all of that stuff peaking at that particular time, just yeah. amazing. There is a legacy to that. I mean, I I go away as much as I can. I love going away. I mean, being a being a travelling Liverpool fan, whether it's domestic or Europe, is is a great experience. And we we continue to take absolute thousands. And the fashion aspect of it is is still important, probably not as much as it was in the seventies, but. You know, you, you go to away games and you can see lads have taken pride in the fact they look, you know, they look cool. And, and the thing to do is not to wear colours. So I never wear colours to away games. I'm no, I'm no fashionista, but I always try and look a certain way. So I always have my best Adidas trainers on and my best jeans on and, you know, don't wear any colours. Because it is that legacy, I think, from the 70s of of, of looking cool when you go yeah, to yeah. the match. Yeah. It does feel like we started that. And as you said, it's a combination between yeah. the sort of explosion of music, the music scene in Liverpool and the European travel. I mean... One story, I might have this wrong, but when we played, um, we went to the 81 European Cup final in Paris. And correct me if I'm wrong or confirm if it's the case. Wasn't there a hunt for this this sort of legendary Adidas shop in Paris that everyone, yeah, yeah, fans heard of this, this, this mecca of Adidas gear, was, but that didn't actually exist? It was your friend and mine, Peter Hooten. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so, I mean, to, to, to set the scene, like, Peter had been in Paris actually just earlier that year. Like, he'd gone to see the Clash play. And he had just started, so he he was he was a youth worker in one of the big estates, Cantrell Farm, and the the 
project that he started there was this fanzine the end you know yeah yeah and it was a famous fanzine it was iconic and I don't even know it might have even been number one it was certainly number one or number two they saw that the Clash were playing in Paris and um, and went there and while he was there um, I think someone had told him that there was you know this huge Adidas as we call it Adidas superstore so when we got to the the final he went back with um, uh, a lad that we know called Robbie the Mod Robbie Patton <laughs> Um, there was a few of them anyway had gone really early like they, I think they, they were there for a week you know including a few days after yeah. and spent like those first couple of days tramping around everywhere <laughs> just trying to you know où est le superstore Adidas où est les tramps and of course it, it, it didn't exist <laughs> superb so that is a true story. I love yeah. that story. It's brilliant. Uh, right, let's get back onto the football. Um, you mentioned him there, Kenny Dalglish. Um, so I did an episode, uh, episode three of this podcast with a guy called Chris Skull, a uh, lovely fella, big West Ham fan. And we were talking about Bobby Moore. And I, and I said to we before we start speaking about Bobby Moore, I said, there's a group of players in terms of relationship with the clubs they played for where it goes beyond just being that club's greatest ever player it's 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 more spiritual than that they're, they're sort of their deity almost and I think Bobby Moore has that with West Ham fans I think Maradona for instance Diego Maradona has that with Napoli fans George Best possibly with Manchester United fans and I think Kenny has that with us because of not only what he did as a player but what he did as a manager and obviously around Hillsborough as well which we'll come on to um when you think of Kenny what's what's kind of the images and the most prominent things that come to mind well first of all he's you know just his nickname says it all everyone just calls him the king yeah. don't they you know the king and for me he was shankly on the pitch i think you know obviously because of the you know the the scottish connection you know this this kind of blue-eyed straight talking no-nonsense man of the people you know mm. somebody who who really you know you could identify with who who, who represented you so for you know there was that for starters but it was the sheer ability I think for for me so again you know I can I remember me my dad who was a terrible mispronouncer of names by the way I remember him calling Pele Peely <laughs> and he used to used to call Johan Cruyff used to call him Cruff and I remember him remember him coming back and uh, after Ajax had destroyed us and he was saying oh they got this lad Cruff I've never never seen skill like it and so he got me into kind of you know whenever he was going to be on telly on those you know looking at him and thinking wow he is just amazing imagine having a player like that see what he'd have um, a nightmare with some of the foreign players that mean in the Premier League during the Premier he, League he, era he, he really would he, I think he I think he would have thrown the towel in by now but uh, but you know from me you know from my generation hitting the ground running starting to go to away games for the first time regularly yeah. and the, the, the same year that you know that the Kenny arrives and the skill that he has and the things that he could do with I'd, I'd never seen that in terms of like bending the ball into you know impossible corners of the goal angles that you didn't know exist and technique you know I can remember being at uh, one of the many many League Cup semi we seem to be in the League Cup semi-final and finally you know, year after year after year I remember being at a replay at Villa Park I think it was against West Ham anyway whoever it was against and um, and him you know squeezing one in almost parallel with the you know with the, mm. the, the ball was about to go out for a you know for a goal kick and squeezing one in from there and you're in the away end and all you see is you know him 
bring his foot back and then the net referee God, how, how does he do that how does he do that and this is interesting you know comparing that team that that you know went on to win so much um with the team that we've got now because there's a lot of people you know who, who you know who ask people of a certain vintage like myself you know is, is the team that we got now the best you've ever seen mm. and it may yet be you know it may yet be but when we had Kenny Dalglish and, and, and Sue Ness in the, in the team. I went to those games knowing we would win. It was a real yeah. shock if we didn't win, home or away. I just expected us to beat whoever was put in front of us. Yeah. And I never have that feeling, you know, even even last season when we you know, we won game after game after game. And it, and it, it proved accurate in a way because I, I can remember like the, the morning of the Watford game and... Um, my lad, you know, saying to me, you know, because I think if we won that, we were, we were beating the record, weren't we? Yeah, they were, we were we were sort of knocking off records every yeah. game. I mean, I was at the Watford game actually. That was the last uh, game I went to before lockdown. Uh, apart from the Madrid game, it was the last yeah. league game I went to before lockdown. Yeah, we, yeah, we were shocking, obviously that day and lost. But you know, the, mm. the the point is, you know, I wasn't overconfident. Mm. I, I don't think I expected us to lose three nil, no. but wasn't overconfident. But but what what Kenny gave you was suddenly you, you know it was, it was that wonderful kind of impregnable feeling of you know oh, we've got Kenny we've got Dalglish and we've also got you know we've got him and we've got him and we've got him yeah. but so so that's what that's what Kenny meant it was like it was like having you know the hardest lad in school as your best mate and uh, and you know and, and having you know Johan Cruff you know, <laughs> and he just there was there was nothing he couldn't do I mean what's interesting with Dalglish is when I watch old clips of him I don't know what a Kenny Dalglish goal looks like and I sort of mean that in a compliment in a way because with certain players they do things and you go that's what they do that's their that's almost like a WWF wrestler that's their that's their killer move that's their special move that's their end move with Dalglish it's it's just a variety of things you can't pin him down to one specific thing he does seem like he it does seem like he was the complete forward the complete footballer I think I've I think that hits the nail on the head in this, you know, it wasn't a Dalglish goal if it wasn't unusual in some way. Mm. Uh, sometimes, you know, just freakish levels of skill. Ambition, you know, trying things that were just never on and wouldn't be on for any other player. Uh, but but with him, you know, he, he would find a way of doing this. And, you know, even, even the legendary goal that won us the league in 86 at Stamford Bridge, you know, I think that because of what it meant, the actual technique involved in the, you know the goal itself kind of gets overlooked. You know, it's you look at goal, how difficult it? Yeah. it is to bring that ball down yeah. in the first place and and finish it like that. Whelan and Dalglish is in here. That's him as a player, but that's you know that that also signals him, you know, taking his first steps as a manager as well. Mm. As a manager, you know, I, I adored him as a manager because your trust in his ability to judge a player mm. was supreme. I mean, that that summer when he brought in John Barnes and Peter Beardsley, you know, and then I think in the 
January. I, I don't think we had a January window as such then, but I know he brought in Ray Houghton yeah. later that season. Yeah, yeah. I was initially gutted because I loved Craig Johnson and it, you know, it meant that Craig Johnson was on his way out and uh, Houghton was being brought in, but never questioned the King's judgment of a player. Mm. And that, that was his, I think, his main skill as a manager, yeah. was knowing who was the best player you could possibly get in every position and just sending them out and saying, well, you know, you, you know what to do. You're better yeah. than them. Go and go out and beat them. And invariably we did. Were you at the Forest game in 88? Yes. The 5-0? Yes. Was it as good as Tom Finney says it was? It, it was spectacular. Yeah. I don't know whether whether you just expected it at that point. You know, it, 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 it's not, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, you absolutely celebrate every single goal mm. and you come out and, and you're saying we're better than Brazil we're just fantastic but um, in terms of you know greatest performance of all time um, I don't know you know for for me as a as a fan it you know it, it has to be up there but I think you tend to you tend to conflate your greatest ever moments with with winning something don't mm. you you know the, or, or, or it you know it, it's having some ulterior meaning so you know, for so many reasons, the Chelsea game in two thousand and five, you know, goes down as as probably my all time favourite mm. Liverpool game, and because there are so many strands that feed into that, you know, it was the you know it was Rafa's first season, and the gr- gradual understanding that perhaps we had you know another Shankly incarnate, mm. the the injuries that we'd had you know in the lead up to that. I mean, you know, you you forget the uh, the freak game away at Blackburn where Carragher broke his ankle mm. and Cissé broke his ankle both in the same game. Yeah, yeah. Um, Xavi Alonso, I think, had been banned, hadn't he? Because uh, you know Lampard baited him yeah. into. I think I in think Lampard stood yeah. over him and went, "Ha ha ha! You're yeah. missing the second leg." Yeah. We'd had Mourinho in the the League Cup final at Cardiff running down the touchline, shushing the crowd. We'd had Steven Gerrard equalising for them, you know, with that. So there was so much that went into it. And the team that we've been fielding, you know, we'd had, you know, in the, in, in the run-up to that game, we'd fielded players like Scott Carson against Juventus, Jimmy Traore, David Raven, lest we forget. Yeah. Um, you know, th- so these were, these, these, this was the team that we were taking on, the European elite with. Yeah. And Chelsea had, you know, had, at, you know, with with Abramovich's billions, had bought every great player available. So to actually go into that game as the you know rank underdogs, even though we'd held them to the nil nil down there, it was one of those where you can feel it outside the ground. You can feel it in the build up. You can feel you know it, it, there's that just unbelievable buzz in the air. And I've you know I I can't tell you if it would be like that if Coventry City got to a game like that. But all mm-hmm. I can tell you is that. When it happens here, you know, under the floodlights, this strange warren of, of terrace streets around mm. uh, around Anfield, Liverpool 4, and we know that we've got our part to play. There's nowhere that delivers like it. And the noise inside there, it was the first time I've ever experienced the entire ground rocking. It wasn't yeah. just the cop. All four sides of the ground rocking. And there's an apocryphal story that... Uh, Abramovich said to his, I think it was like his his, uh, his chairman or his uh, commercial manager at the time, whose name was Paul Smith. He said, you know, how come we can't have this? Mm. And he unfortunately signed his uh, his sacking his P45 by saying, 
say, oh, there are some things that you just can't buy. We're six and a half minutes into the game and the referee has still not blown. Here is Chelsea. Ball to their keeper. Yes! What were only dreams eight months ago and now reality for Liverpool Football Club. They've taken on the best in Europe head on and booked their place in the Champions League final. It's Istanbul on May the 25th, 2005. The emotions around this ground are almost too much to take. This Anfield crowd can take such a heavy role, such a heavy credit for the win tonight. And for Liverpool, the team and this crowd, just listen to this. It's what it's all about. I'm enjoying this so much. I don't want it to stop. I want it to keep on. This is what you live for, Steve. When you're passionate about football, this is what you've got now. It doesn't get much better than this. Absolutely fantastic. Liverpool won't sleep tonight. I'm afraid well, the red off. They won't sleep tonight. Well, I've no idea how we got onto that game, given we were talking about Kenny Dalglish. But we will come back to it because I do want to talk about Anfield and the atmosphere and stuff. And I've got a lot to say about the Chelsea game as well. But just to go back to yeah. to that period. Um, I wasn't going to talk about him actually, but you've mentioned him a couple of times. I think he's a really interesting figure in Liverpool's history. Is Graham Souness? Um, from whenever I watch any clips of him, whenever I hear anyone speak about him who, who who's seen him play, he just looks like possibly Gerard aside, and maybe even more than Gerard, the best midfielder we've ever had. And it does feel his reputation has obviously been tarnished by what happened to him when he was a manager. A by the fact he wasn't a very good manager, but B more importantly that the Sun front page. Um, do you just want to talk about Sunes in terms of your? I mean, what's your take on him? If, if Graham was sat here now, um, what's the sort of levels of warmth you'd feel for him? Do you want to be sat with Graham Sunes now? What would you like to 100%, 100%, 100%, ask him? Hundred percent, hundred percent. No, I mean, you know, what I'd say to him was, you know, you were one of the greatest players that I've ever seen in a Liverpool shirt. You should have known better than to ever even contemplate speaking to the sun, let alone yeah. doing it. And shame on you for doing that. But you don't need me to tell you that because he knows. He's made that abundantly clear. And I can only speak for myself, but, you know, I can see the sincerity of that and mm. I accept it for what it is. I dearly wish it hadn't happened and that, that, you know, that isn't one of the first things that you think of. And he's got to live with that. He's got to he's got to live with the reality that when his name comes up, that is one of the first things you'll think of. Um, but you know, he is uh, as as a footballer, he was supreme. I just you know wish I wish he'd been in that team for a, an awful lot longer. Yeah, obviously went to went to Sampdoria after we won the European Cup in in Rome in '84. Um, right, yeah. I mean, we've got to talk about Hillsborough. You wrote a. Um, incredible book on it Hillsborough Voices in 2016 I believe it was actually published yeah. and I had the incredible privilege of hosting a event to, um, to sort of promote the book um, which you which you invited me to do and I'll forever be thankful for that it was in, an incredible privilege as I said to do so um, in, in, a, in a branch of Waterstones in London I think it was Gower Street Gower Street, Gower yeah. Street yeah. yeah indeed yeah. so yeah as I said I mean just utter privilege to, to host this event and there were many of the contributors that were there so Andy Burnham Sheila Coleman Martin Thompson Dame, Damon Cavanagh and many other people you were, you were there yourself um, you were at Hillsborough yourself as well it's hard to know what to really say about Hillsborough I mean we you know you could talk about it for hours so much has been said and, and so much has been felt about it just one thought I have about Hillsborough and I've been intrigued to get your thoughts on it is I actually think it should be on the national curriculum 
because there's so much there that children need to learn about i mean grief corruption injustice the importance of family community of, of never giving up of, of fighting for what you know is right um it's a monumental monumental part of obviously our club's history but of, of national history as well isn't it it's, it's huge and and what's your thoughts on that i mean do you think it should be taught as a subject at school should be because the other issue as well is people still mock us about Hillsborough and you know you hear the horrific chants about it I just think many people outside of our fan base don't appreciate really what happened that day and as I said everything around it in particular the injustice yeah in, in, in terms of the national curriculum I think it's you know it's important for all the reasons that you, you've stated there but I think in particular you know for um, for students of a certain age to you know to, to understand the strength of uh, of collective campaigning for mm. basic civil rights, you yeah. know, for, for civil justice. And certainly that has been the case here. I think, again, you know, it, 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 it's worth reminding everybody that this all, you know, Hillsborough happened in an era before the majority of people inside the ground would have, would have had, uh, you know, a, a mobile phone with a, you know, with a, with a pocket camera. So, effectively, you know, us being there and knowing what happened and having been through everything, that was the, you know, that, that became, that, that, that truth to power became the most critical mm. asset of the years of campaigning that happened. Because really, I mean, my, my experience was, um, when I was, I, I was living and working in London at the time, I'd, you know, gone back, stayed at my mum's, went with me brother and some mates um on the sunday the following day everybody seemed to gravitate towards the ground that just seemed to be the the natural and automatic thing to mm. do and there was uh there was a mute sense of grief you know a shared grief but there was there was a degree of comfort to be had from the fact that everybody was together nobody you know the, it was it was silent and it was humble and it was dignified, but it was communal. And um, I then went back to London, and it was like stepping from something that was quite, um, for all this, it was desolate and, and it was sad, it was devastating. It was like stepping from, a, it's like stepping into a different, completely different atmosphere. I went into work and a couple of the lads that I worked with, who were my friends, who I played football with, who were drinking with, the first thing was, you know, oh, thank God you're all right, you know, because they knew I'd been at the game, mm. you know, good to see you back. Yeah. And then the next thing out of the mouth was, what are you lot like, eh? Doing that, I was doing what, you know, smashing the smashing the gates down and all of that. I can remember being being, you know, being stunned, and you know, I was aghast, and, and, and I thought just firstly how do you physically think that is possible you know you both go to football you know you're a west ham fan you you know i think you support reading what just just picture you know picture those gates when they when they're closed you know how how would you propose to smash a, a stainless yeah. steel door how do you how do you do that you know um secondly it just didn't happen you mustn't you know so so it that was a you know the definition of a rude awakening and, and 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 it was the prevailing view as well so you know what had happened in that 48 hour period was that not just the police but the authorities the establishment you know the site 
of the the prime minister you know on the leppings lane you know being briefed that narrative had already been laid down and and, and, and nailed down and we were on a hide into nothing and it was really you know it the the only thing that kept the truth alive was the fact that we had witnessed this we'd mm. lived through this so what the campaigns and i say campaigns because there were you know there were there were several for all that the you know the um the organization you know was the the family support group initially um and that you know that was to provide you know advice and support and comfort to those who were bereaved the emergence of the the hillsborough justice campaign allowed for survivors to have a voice and also for everyday fans who you know who had some input and wanted to do something and wanted you know wanted to wanted to make sure that that, that you know that that their stories were mm. were being heard as well and and you know there were various private private prosecutions and there were and you know inherent in this this word campaign you know i include you know the leafleting the posters the stickers you know you used to see you know our justice stickers everywhere the badges the wristbands and the thread that kept all of those things alive for all the various incredibly inspiring prominent people have led and have you know, have sacrificed everything to you know to ensure that they have done everything they could to to do justice to their loved ones but the thread that links it all is you know is our truth mm. and and the reason for for Hillsborough Voices so I mean just to to be clear about that that's a series of interviews I, I didn't write it so much as yeah, I, no. I, uh, yeah. I compiled it I did, mm. uh, did, did the interviews mm. and, 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 and put them all together and it came at a time where it, it felt as though there'd been a brief respite because the original verdicts had finally been rescinded new verdicts have been ordered yeah. and a uh, new inquest have been ordered and the verdict of those inquests was on you know on each of the 14 points came out in favor of the fans and the families and and, and yeah. proved and that, that happened in 2012 and yeah. yeah. well 2012 was when the original verdicts were quashed yeah. the um the new inquest started in 2014 but it was actually yeah. uh, 2016 mm. wasn't it when the uh, the new verdicts were handed down that's right but yeah. um, the unlawfully killed verdicts yeah so so yeah. it seemed that, that there was brief respite it didn't last mm. long but but i still felt as though you know as a fan base that we were in negative equity we'd had that you know almost 30 years of wherever we went you know being being taunted you exactly, know yeah. being taunted mm. and um and just you know this assumption that there was no smoke without fire but you know in in the highest court in the land you know the original verdicts were quashed in you know in in a coroner's crown court there were new verdicts so that you know that's fact so but i still felt as though there had to be a legacy and that you you don't ever stop talking about it and you know the the people who survived grenfell will be will be feeling a similar sort of thing you know when the establishment kind of closes ranks to um, to perpetrate mm. you know an alternative truth then it's you know it's a very very powerful mechanism that you're up against and it takes it takes tenacity it takes determination and it takes sheer bloody mindedness when you know what's happened and everybody else is telling you that something completely different happened mm. to keep on telling them again and again and again that 
our truth is the prevailing truth. And I do think schools, you know, should should look at, at, at these cases like Hillsborough and Grenfell and, 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 and actually apply them to mm. to people's day-to-day lives because, you know, this is what we're, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about everyday people um, who went about their business assuming that the authorities who were tasked with making our day-to-day lives safe, you know, things that you would mm. take for granted... Exactly. There was gross dereliction of duty, yeah. and uh, and people died as a result of that. And there have to be consequences, and there has to be answerability, and there has to be there has to be improvements, you know, as a as a result of that. Yeah, but I mean that that's why I think it needs to be taught because we're, we're brought up as as children to believe that the government and the police are there to protect us and always there on our side, and they will always tell you that's the case that they're always doing that as well. But Hillsborough and Grenfell, Grenfell is another great example, proves that's not the case. And I think you, you need to, you know, it's a, it's a sort of horrible thing to, to say almost, but children need to be taught to be cynical as early as possible and to and to see that actually, as we're saying, that the truth is very different. And that's why I almost feel it needs to be taught. But there's kind of the, the clues in the title there. We're saying a national curriculum will involve a national government uh, imp- implementing that. And obviously, certainly the government we've got at the moment aren't going to do that. I just wonder with Hillsborough Voices, well, obviously you were there on the day itself. Did you learn anything significantly new about the day through the process of doing the interviews for the book that you didn't know on the day itself? Oh, I mean, uh, both through doing the book and through, um, you know, being quite involved in, you know, in uh, some of the activity at at this end as well you know piece by piece incrementally you learn so many mm. staggering facts and figures and statistics but the the thing i think that i find chilling is the fact that there were adequate numbers of ambulances outside the yeah. ground so it's it's really that thing about the amount of people so you know there are so many things i mean the the ground was in a t- decrepit condition and and yet still had a safety certificate. I mean, there are so. Just say there'd been a scare. Wasn't it the season before? Was it was Tottenham played Wolves in a? There've been there've been numerous yeah. there've been numerous scares. But yeah, yeah I mean yeah. you know very very similar thing happened. Tottenham against yeah. Wolves yeah. Um, in the eighty seven semi final. I think mm, that was. Yeah. Um, so there you know there are so many things you can point to, but once the crushing had started and, and, and people were being lifted out onto the pitch and lifted out onto the, the sides of the ground and be, be behind the, the Leppings element. It's the thing about about how many people could have been saved had there been adequate um, ad- adequate first aid and oxygen and expertise on hand. Now there were over 50 ambulances outside the ground but what they were being informed was that um, that there was acts of hooliganism yeah. taking place inside the ground. So things like, um, you know, the, the fire brigade, for example, could have been scrambled to bring cutting equipment really quickly to have got those fences down, got more people out. But again, the, the, the disinformation that started and, and, and it was this thing of, you know, that it was disorder, it was violence. And so they were, their advice was to hang back. And that is, that, that's very, very difficult to get past that. Well, I think the biggest irony is that the sun is shining now and Hillsborough's quiet and over there to the left, the green Yorkshire Hills. And who would have known that people would die here in the stadium this afternoon? I don't necessarily want to reflect on Heisel, but I was there that night broadcasting with Emlyn Hughes and he was sitting behind me this afternoon. And after half an hour of watching stretchers going out and oxygen cylinders being brought in and ambulance sirens screaming, he touched me on the shoulder and he said, I can't take any more. And Henry Hughes left. 
the gymnasium here at Hillsborough is being used as a mortuary for the dead. And at this moment, stewards have got little paper bags and they're gathering up the personal belongings of the spectators. And the red and white scarves of Liverpool and red and white bobble hats of Liverpool and red and white brosettes of Liverpool and nothing else. And the sun shines now. She just adds, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but uh, the Sunes Sun interviews obviously linked to Hillsborough as well. Um, yeah, those two things are very Yeah, so Sunes had a heart bypass mm-hmm. operation. And um, I think that was in 1992. Yeah, it was in the run-up um, to the in the semi-final, wasn't it? The yeah, yeah, yeah. play, I think, yeah. And, you know, for, for reasons best known for himself, uh, chose to sell the story of his you know his near-death experience to the sun which was um which was you know the worst choice he could possibly have made yeah i mean that's three years after hillsborough it's just absolutely staggering but yeah we've got to move on and, and i want to go back to to anfield's atmosphere then um so yeah you, t- you touched on the chelsea game there um the way you spoke about it was absolutely perfect and i was nodding away as you were saying it it was it is remains without a doubt my all-time Anfield experience and I was at the Barcelona game last year as well it was just an incredible night and the thing I remember most about that Chelsea game is and, and I think I think you did you you, uh, you referenced this the cop shook you know genuinely I was on the cop on that night against Chelsea in 2005 and it moved under my feet and I nearly fell over that's how incredible the atmosphere is and just to talk about the atmosphere about Anfield in general is again it's one of those things outsiders roll their eyes about when people talk about the famous Anfield atmosphere this is my take and and then I'll hand over to you to either agree or disagree is look there's many games Anfield and there have been over the years where the atmosphere has been a bit flat or nothing more than fine I remember Rob Gutman wrote a great piece for the Anfield rap about this saying in the 80s it was actually quite rubbish because everyone just got bored with all the winning and it was very quiet most games and that's happened during my time at following the club as well there's loads of games you know Aston Villa at home or in the league or Sunderland at home or you know a cup game an early round cup game where it's fine it's absolute you know it's nothing to write home about but the point is I think with Anfield's atmosphere is when it's great it's really really great so Chelsea in 2005 Barcelona last year so many nights under Rafa the St Etienne night in 77 Inter Milan in 64 5 65 sorry 65 that's the point isn't it we're not saying as Liverpool fans it's great all the time but when it is great as you said so brilliantly about Chelsea it's just mega isn't it it is and in in extra time, you know, which was the, the book I wrote about one of our mediocre seasons <laughs> yeah. in the in the nineties. That's the you know the ninety seven ninety eight season. Yes. But you know, I, I said in that you know for for as long as I can remember, it has become you know something of a special occasion crowd, yeah. and and that whole thing of that that I was talking about of you know sitting in the Kemlin and and, and looking at the, the copy and I I saw like over a period of years, you know the um, the whole thing of that, you know, that swaying, you know, packed tight, vociferous, you know, funny, spontaneous crowd. I saw that dwindle. So I don't mm. know again whether that, you know, what the the reasons for that are. Whether it was the, you know, the the fact of becoming com- complacent. But but saying that, you know, I I um, I want to row back a little bit on 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 that slightly, uh, you know, that that statement of it, it being a special occasion because there would be times when. When you know, almost as though it was like muscle memory, the, uh, the you know the when 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 needs be. So you know there'd be, be games. I can remember us playing Oldham in about 1993, and um, 
and absurdly, you know, going two down to them, and you know, you can't lose to all of them, you know. And we managed, you know, and the the, the crowd kind of woke up, and, and it yeah. got really, really loud, really boisterous, quite funny, quite rude. And we ended up. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure it was the season that McManaman broke onto the scene. I'm sure he prodded one in right at the end yeah. you know but we ended up beating them 3-2 and then we, we equalised in the, the 90th minute and won it in the 93rd you know it was like that and that was that was down mm. to the crowd you know the crowd really got behind them um, but in terms of you know the mythical status you know I, I, I do think like some of these uh, European fans or you know people who, who might have come from Japan you know for this lifetime experience and and they end up you know you know let's say you know it's it's Leverkusen, for example, and they're expecting the cop to be like it is against Barcelona. Yeah. And and it is for five minutes, and then everybody settles down and go, right, entertain us now. You know, that's uh, the, 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 there's no shame in that. No. But um, but I think the fact remains that we can, you know, we can pluck, you know, 20, 30, 40, you know, inc- that's when there have been games and there have been unbelievable atmospheres that are you know, that are worth writing home against. And it still is a very, very special place. Yeah. Just remind me that, you're talking about the, the, the European fans, just a, a story reminding me, it was, a, it was a game, was it last season, the season before, I was in the Sandon where I always go for a pint before the game, I was having a piss in the toilets. And there was a couple of overseas fans in there and uh, Evertonians will laugh at this, I think they were probably Scandinavian. Um, and they were in the toilet and they had, you know, kits you know shirt scarf the full sort of liverpool merchandise look on and they were like how come nobody's singing where's all the yeah. singing and he's like, <laughs> someone just shout lad we're having a piss it's like <laughs> yeah there is a lot around yeah. us and you know it's as i said it's not there all the time but i think on those big nights it really does happen and it feels like it's come back during the Klopp era he really has connected with the fan base and he's he's energized and obviously it helps out with so good as well at the time doesn't it I definitely, I mean, you know, one one of his early games, like Klopp, actually, you know, took the very calculated risk of of criticising the crowd, didn't he? Yeah. He said, "Oh, Palace, you know, he said, I, 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 felt, yeah. I felt very, very lonely out yeah. there," and that certainly galvanised people. I think, you know, I, I I really think that the addition of the new main stand has done wonders for the atmosphere because so much of the e- emphasis, you know, has always been on the cop. And a lot of the people on the cop, you know, the season ticket holders um, from my generation, and, you know, they are perhaps not so inclined as they might have been when they were, you know, in, in, in the teens and 20s mm-hmm. and, 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 and 30s to, to vocally back the team. So, you know, I think, I think that's quite an ageing mm-hmm. population. But the new stand has opened it up, you know, it's quite democratic and the, the whole thing of the ticket ballots and everything. So when people get a ticket, you know, there's a real sense, you know, it, it just I see so much. That, that's where I am these days. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm in the, uh, the big main stand. And there's so much that reminds me of, of, of me coming yeah. into that ground for the first place. You know, you can see that there are people who, you know, they feel as though they've got Willy Wonka's golden tickets. Yeah. They might not get another one this season and they're going to enjoy it and they just, you know, they get right behind the team. Well, I've been going to Anfield regularly now for 17 years, 2003. I mean, I'd been before. My first ever game was 92, but in terms of regularly going, it's 2003 and it's, I think it's the best it's ever been, just think for consistency yeah, of atmosphere. Um, Kev, you've got to go in about sort of 25 minutes, so there's still a, f- a few things I want to ask you, so let, let's rattle through them. One thing I've got to ask you about is, is Extra Time. It's genuinely one of my favourite books of all time. As you said, it's a diary of the 97-98 season, which was a pretty mediocre season <laughs> in Liverpool's history. The standout thing was, was Michael Owen's emergence. Um, 
uh, but it's just such a great book. It's it's so funny. You, I think, did you go to every game that season? Yeah, yeah. I think so. But, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I probably claimed it. Even yeah, yeah. It's yeah. your diary. I mean, it started with Wimbledon away. Yeah, and one I, hole, I, I, I can remember being elated because we'd uh, we'd gone a goal down and we we fought back and we got yeah. a plucky draw yeah. at Wimbledon and and that made the the train ride back. You know, massive fun. Yeah. Paul Ince's debut, isn't it? If I'm not mistaken. Um, it's just a great book it's so brilliant it's so funny and it's, and it's just the essence of being a football fan I, I absolutely adore it I just want to ask you there's um, in, in again I can't remember the intro of the first the introduction on the first paragraph you write this line um, about following Liverpool in the 90s um, and you say we never used to sit for hours debating all that went wrong with the club we do now there's a thriving Merseyside forum for disaffected fans who need to get it all off their chests. The fans are paranoid. Quite simply, we need to win the league again. So this is obviously early '97 or mid or summer of '97. Just, I just that was a decade I grew up following Liverpool, and you know I was aware it was a barren spell. But because I was a teenager, like you, the way you talk about the '70s, it was just everything was just incredibly exciting. So I'm curious, um, how angsty did it get? I mean, so to put that in context, so we had last won the league in 1990. Yeah. Um, and then we had, you know, this this real kind of run of, 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 of just, you know, bad luck where Kenny decided to throw the towel in after uh, we had that incredible 4-4 yeah. against Everton and he, you know, everything had got too much for him and and he decided to go. Um, but it seemed like the appointment of Souness, you know, that just seemed, because Souness had just it revolutionised Rangers, mm. you know, they've been playing second fiddle to Celtic. Just for felt so, long. so perfect at the time. Just Even I, as a like ten-year-old, yeah. thought, "God, that is such yeah. a perfect appointment." It, I mean, and, and you know, you can only imagine that the directors of the club did it was the yeah. perfect fit. You yeah. know, it was this, this whole thing. It wasn't quite the boot room philosophy, but it was as near as could yeah. be. And he was, you know, he'd somebody who who embodied the best of both worlds. You know, he understood the Liverpool way, but he'd played for Sampdoria, he'd played in Turkey, he'd been a successful manager already. So you know. It, it it seemed take made, but it didn't work out. Um, saying all that, you know, the the emergence of of Roy Evans, you know, going back to that boot room philosophy under Roy Evans for a season or two, I thought we played the best football I'd seen since the the Barnes and Beardsley yeah, team, yeah. but somehow contrived to. I think that, you know, the the moment I I started having second thoughts was after the worst FA Cup final mm. of all time, ninety six. You know, because yeah. we. We should really have beaten that United team. Yeah. The team we had was actually better than their team, and there was something about, the, you know, the, the man management side of it might not have been there. They just didn't seem, they didn't seem to be as disappointed as I'm, I'm mm. sure they were. I'm not saying they were, but just you know, the, it didn't, it just didn't, didn't seem right. We then went into this strange marriage of convenience where Gerard Hulier came in, uh, and he was the director of the football or was he the manager or was he the co-manager was Ray Evans and, and it was as confusing in practice mm-hmm. as it looked on paper that lasted half a season and then Julier you know started what was to be I think you know the the gradual process that would lead to yeah. us being a force to reckon with again but for me as a fan you know nothing changes there's a my, my favourite quote by any fan anywhere so there's there was a a legendary Liverpool fan called Bobby Wilcox, and Bobby and his singing partner Lenny Woods. I must just just say for a moment, you know, rest peacefully, Lenny, because he uh, he died a couple of days yeah, ago. Yeah, he did indeed. Yeah, and um, and the the two of them would be seen everywhere. You know, always singing, always always looking for the upside. So, so Bobby Wilcox used to 
run his own bus and it became so popular that he'd be knocking people back so he had two or three you know it was called Wilcox Tours and was legendary for the you know for the singing that would go on and a lot of what was going on in that that era in the 90s you know a lot of the you know the really unacceptable face of a Liverpool fan you know the 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 Julian Dix era you know the Neil Ruddock era you know all all this sort of thing Torben Peaknick these sort of players they would laugh it off and I, I would get quite upset about it I'd be, I'd, I'd be saying you know so just to give you one example we all went to the Youth Cup final 1996 it was the well, we won was, yep, against West Ham yeah. against West Ham it was the Wednesday after the the horrible Man United Cup final and we won but but literally head and shoulders the best player on the pitch was Rio Ferdinand and I can remember saying to uh, you know to these guys off the you know saying saying do you know what I, I would Swap Neil Ruddock for that kid in the defence. I'd do it tomorrow. No money, no, no, yeah. no money or anything. Just a straight swap. And uh, this this lad whose name is um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to pronounce his name wrong. Anyway, he, he drives a taxi, and we call him Jimmy Fowler because uh, you know we play football with him, and he's a, he's a, he's a lethal goal scorer. Yeah. But, but um, Jimmy Blundell, that's his name. So Jimmy Blundell turns to me and shrugs his shoulders and goes, "I just go." And that's it. that that was the philosophy of all those guys off that yeah. coach was you know players come players go there'll be you know the, the you take the rough with the smooth yeah. but at the end of the day you just go and and that's how it was you know so in, in in extra time you know what I hope comes through is the sheer joy de vivre of yeah. being a football fan and I, I, I think that will translate whoever you support yeah we go is is just is just the, the 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 essence of that book and it's like it's like for me it's like the written text for this podcast if you enjoy this podcast go read extra time by kevin sampson because it just sums up the joy of being a football fan that even as you say when the team's not very good the actual fun is is going to watch a team and, and for me like watching the sadness of not being able to go to the match at the moment is it's not the 90 minutes necessarily i do of course i miss standing and i miss the you know standing in a cop and watching this fantastic team win games and win trophies but it's just meeting my mates getting on the coach from North London up to Liverpool, having a laugh, getting in the sand and having a few pints, the chat on the way home. It's all of that stuff around it that I miss. And that is all summed up absolutely brilliantly in, in the book. Um, so as I said, go get extra time. It's probably on something. It's on Amazon, isn't it? And stuff as well. It's a fantastic yeah, book. Yeah, it might, it, it might be one of those uh, e-book, print-on-demand things now. It's yeah. a long time since it... So let's just say it's niche. It's niche, so yeah. It's a, it's it, a, it, it rewards a determined super <laughs> <laughs> It's a wonderful book. Right, Kevin, you do need to go soon. So um, I've got one, well, a couple of things more to ask you. It's the standard stuff that we end the podcast with. So first of all, you're all-time eleven. Um, and it's some team there's, there's a few players as I said I want to ask you about specifically but let's go through it so this is your all time Liverpool 11 based on players obviously you've seen play it's a 4-3-3 formation Ray Clements in goal back four from right to left Rob Jones Sammy Hoopier Alan Hansen and Andy Robertson midfield three Steven Gerrard Graham Souness and Jan Mulby and up front, Kenny Dalglish, of course, Robbie Fowler and John Barnes. Um, a lot of those players, I think, are pretty self-explanatory. Just some absolutely phenomenal footballers in there. I want to ask you about three in particular. So Ray Clements first. Um, so the best goalkeeper I've seen for Liverpool, well, he was for a long time, was was Pepe Reina. I mean, my time following Liverpool, as I said, from 90s onwards, we've, been, we've not had many good keepers. But we had Reina, who was great. But he's been usurped by Alison Becker for me, who I just think is an absolutely unbelievably good goalkeeper. But Clements is your number one, and he's all—he seems to be—he's well, I say seem—he he just generally is the number one Liverpool goalkeeper for fans who saw him play. 
So can you just say to me, as someone who adores Alison Becker, who thinks he's the greatest goalkeeper Liverpool have had, why is Clemens better? So if you were asking me this question in three years' time, yeah. I've got no doubt that my answer will be Alison Becker. He demonstrates all the qualities and all the potential to go down as somebody who... Yeah delivered consistent levels of the sort of success we crave and expect at Liverpool simply because of you know it, it, it's tying you know you, you see these things through through a, a deeply kind of personal lens and it's also you've achieved things together and I feel that you know me and Ray have, uh, have done a lot together you know we've yeah. certainly won a lot of European Cups <laughs> a lot of league titles so the reason that there aren't more from the present team you know I could imagine Sadio Mane being in, in, yeah. in that list, you know. Um, I could definitely imagine Alisson being in that list. Um, Virgil van Dijk comes very, very close. But just in terms of... And, and by the way, Pepe Reina, you know, very, very nearly. It, 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 it's simply for, you know, the lack of material silverware at the end of it all. So, yeah. so it's not just, you know, the shot-stopping and the, you know, the sense of impregnability and confidence that they give you. It's the... It's what you go through. It, yeah. it, 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 it's you know at the end of it. It you know it's it's trips on railways or easy yeah. jet planes and, and 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 seeing us, you know, lifting trophies high into the sky. Yeah. So that's you know that's partly why Ray Clemens. He's also though the goalkeeper when we only let sixteen goals in one season. So there's there's got to be something to be said for his technique yeah. as well. He might actually have been a pretty good keeper. It's not you know. It's not all rose-tinted nostalgia. Well, what you said there about the journey you go on with the players, that links beautifully to, to one of the other players I want to speak about, that, and that is Sammy Hippier, because um, I put out an all-time Liverpool eleven on, on Twitter a few weeks ago. I can't remember why. It was linked to something the BBC were doing. I think they were asking people to name their all-time Liverpool 11s. I'm not quite sure why. It might have been linked to us winning the league. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But Sammy Hippie is in mine. He's actually alongside Jamie Carragher in mine. And people were giving me abuse for putting him in, because you know, I hadn't put Virgil van Dijk in. And the point I made with Hippier is... Um, yeah, Virgil van Dijk is probably a better player than Sammy Hippier. But for me, again, the journey I've been on with Sammy Hippier, you know, I went to Istanbul. I saw him be part of that miracle team, him and Carragher together. And I think as well, he was as transformative a signing for Liverpool as Virgil van Dijk has been for Liverpool. And this goes back to extra time. We were terrible defensively in the 90s. And he came round and he almost single-handedly sorted us out at the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it just feels like people have forgotten that about Sammy. He was immense for us, wasn't he? He was immense, and and you know pe- people from from my generation, you know, go on and on and on about Hanson and Lawrence, and and Sammy Hoopier was, you know, he was Alan Hanson. He, he had that yeah. elegance, you know. He was really, you know, he was rock hard. He won everything in the air. For starters, you know, that was one thing that needs sorting out. You know, us from corners and set plays. Yeah. You know, we were just so vulnerable. Sorted that out. But that ability, to, you know, to, to carry the ball out of the fence, we love that in Liverpool. You know, we've, we've, we've grown up on it. We've come to expect that ball-playing centre-back who can take a few paces out, you know, go round the player if necessary, look for a pass. He had that. So, you know, the, for me, you know, always one of the first names on the team yeah. sheet. Oh, I love Sammy. And another player I love, and I'm so glad you picked him, is Rob Jones. Um, he doesn't get into my personal time 11 I have gone with Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back who I just think is a different calibre right back but I do I love Rob Jones career kind of ended very suddenly due to injury in 98 um, he did uh, won, well he did win two trophies with us of course in the 90s but that whole period wasn't wasn't great as, we, as we've spoken about but he's brilliant wasn't he and I think slightly yeah. ahead of his time as well yeah I think I think you know he is the one player who gets in 
purely on ability because obviously that slightly goes against my thing of uh, yeah, you know, lifting trophies. He did, yeah. you know, he, 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 he won, a, won a few. Yeah. But um, no, it was just, just him as a player. He was immaculate. I mean, he, he was just... Uh, Never had a bad game. I can't think of a one bad game that Rob Jones had for us. Maybe, maybe I missed no. it, but I can't think of one. No, I mean, he, he, he got his first start at Old Trafford. Yeah. So, a bit like Trent, I'm sure Trent didn't play at Old Trafford very, yeah. very early on. Yeah, very early on. And yeah. he had a rocky first 20 yeah. minutes and then he just he, he, he sorted himself out and has never looked back since and it was the same with, with, with Rob Jones you know it was a, it was a very very late call up uh, it was a Sunday game mm. and didn't put a foot wrong I love footballers who make the game look easy mm. I mean Jan Mulvey's in, in the team for that reason you know, it's just it's a combination of sublime God given skill and and the you know the thing that you can't teach which is game intelligence and you know you would argue that that Rob Jones was too good for that team no I, I think Rob Jones is fantastic player and a really nice guy as well um, I've interviewed him and he's, he's a lovely bloke um, right Kev I think I've got a few more minutes with you so I'm just going to try and squeeze and talk of one more player mm-hmm. um, if, if I can manage that before you I know you need to head off so Stephen Gerrard um, you wrote a lovely chapter on him for me the definitive piece on Gerrard if I may say so myself for the book that myself and Carl Kopak did a few years ago Wherever We Were Us which is a diary as well of, uh, of a Liverpool season not a very good one the 2014-15 one um, we haven't got time to speak about him in great depth, obviously. I just, I'm just curious to get your take on where he stands in the pantheon of Liverpool midfielders because we've had a heck of a many good ones uh, in the time. Certainly, you've supported the club. Souness, uh, we've spoken about, and arguably, just for pure talent, is the best one. I mean, is Gerard first of all the best midfielder we've had, and is he actually the best player we've ever had as well? Not only the best midfielder, but the best player. Yeah, yeah, the best I have ever seen, and. Again, you know, it's it, it, it's a shame, really, that he didn't have more of his calibre around him. You know, there was that wonderful period, you know, all too short-lived, where we had Mascherano and Alonso yeah. and him. But, but, but Gerard, I mean, first of all, you know, look at goals alone, you know, just not just the amount of goals he scored, but the, the quality of those goals. I mean, you just... You, you hardly ever see a bad one. Mm-hmm. You know, even his headed goals were superb. You know, his passing range was like nothing you've ever seen before. His leadership qualities. You know, I, I talked before about the uh, the aura that came with Kenny Dalglish and that sense that so long as you had him in your team, you really, really, really stood a chance. You know, you you felt the same with Gerard, and and this is not being wise after the events, but the you know the half time in Istanbul where we're three 0 down. Uh, partly, you know, to console my uh, my little daughter who was with us, and you know, all of our travelling party. You know, there was real kind of the, everybody was just disconsolate at yeah. half time. It had been it had been really really difficult getting there. It involved several flights and a long long car journey through rutted hills in northern Bulgaria. You know, it was. Um, and the idea that we had to do it all again going back, you know, it was unthinkable. But not just because of that, but purely because we had Stephen Gerrard. And I was saying to them, look, it's, you know, it's not over by a long chalk. There's another 45 minutes to play. We can, you know, this is an old team we're up against, you know, if we just believe in ourselves and have a go at them. And that is exactly what's happened. And, you know, I, I, I would love to think, you know, Rafa lifted them, but what you what you could see, what you knew for yeah, sure, yeah. was that Gerard lifted them. You know, he was, he he genuinely did, and it wasn't just that. You know, 
that angry, you know, you're not good enough to be playing with me that you sometimes, you know, you'd see in a player like Rude Hullet, for example, when he's at Newcastle, you could see he was almost contemptuous of the players around him because he was just so good. Mm. But Gerard lifted, you know, a lot of those quite average players to excel themselves. Gerard, like, you know, pulled the whole thing together and you, know, you can see it with his response, with his, with his goal, but, he, he, you know, that was that was the player and the captain. And in every respect you care to name, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, who is your greatest ever, it's got to be him. So Kenny and John Barnes, you know, clearly are, are in that conversation, you know, unbelievable players who, who did utterly remarkable things with the football and gave me as a fan so many happy memories and made me walk tall and gave me pride but Gerard is uh, is something else you know for me for this little man with a tiny head who's sitting in front of you the greatest player ever to play for LFC spot on I think you put it perfectly there brilliant um final question Kevin so this is the question I ask everyone who's on this podcast and I word it in a certain way so the way I say it is if the club you support could give you something next five years and it has to be realistic what would you ask for but because of how good we are at the moment let's face it we are despite that horrific defeat to Villa we're a very good team I'm going to take the realistic bit out of it and I'm just going to ask you quite simply Kevin Sampson if Liverpool could give you something in the next five years what would you ask for 21 league titles that would be amazing that would be absolutely beautiful. If you do the maths, you can see why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's up its manager, isn't it? It well and truly put us back on our perch. Yeah. Enough it. said. <laughs> Enough <Brilliant>. said. <laughs> Kevin Sampson, thank you very, very much. It's been my very great pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Cheers, mate. You meet the 24,000 super supporters who crowd onto the great Swan Cup, the greatest choir, the greatest enthusiasts in football. <laughs>